Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Guys, I'm going to open up with a uh, controversial hot take. I woke up this morning and I looked outside and I thought, wow, that looks beautiful. I did not complain about the snow. I know, I'm changing. Oh, I was doing stuff. I was like, oh, I was driving. All the trees were covered with the frosted tips. I was like, mmm, this is good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Hot take. Um, <laughs> so this Lenten season, as Evan said, we've been going through a series called Living Hope, where we've been looking through the book of First Peter at different facet, facets of the hope that we have in Christ. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Evan talked about what is true about hope, and last week, Bridget spoke to us about how we have hope as strangers and exiles here on earth, and this week, we are going to talk about hope in unjust suffering. So if you guys want to open your Bibles or swipe or whatever you have, um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and that's where we're going to be pretty much the whole time. But before we get into it, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much, God, for the way that you've already been ministering to us, Lord. Thank you that your presence is here and that it is strong. We pray that you would open our hearts up to everything that you have for us, God, that you would remove all distractions, um, every blockade that tries to keep us from you, Lord. Help us to um, have our hearts open so that you could speak to us, encourage us, comfort us, strengthen us, and be with us, Lord. Um, and bring us to you in a powerful way that we can carry into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start off just by reading the passage. This is 1 Peter 1, 18 through 25. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you, are, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So in this passage, Peter is telling his readers how to live in a society that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. In this time, you know, the church was spread out among all the different places in Rome, and tension was rising. People were ostracizing Christians. Some of them were being thrown in jail or beaten and these kinds of things. Um, And Peter is addressing them, like, how should we live in this kind of age where Christianity is not this, like, welcome, beloved thing, but is seen as... At, wor- at worst, or at best, it's seen as odd, and at worst, it's seen as a problem that needs to be dealt with. 
Um, and specifically in here, he is addressing the difficult situation of Christian slaves suffering unjustly at the hands of their ungodly, unchristian masters. Now, Peter is addressing slaves in this passage, but we would be making a mistake to assume that slavery in the biblical times was the exact same as the evils of the race-based slavery that we experienced in America. In ancient Rome, slavery was just a little bit closer to like a social class than the inescapable subjugation, dehumanization, and devaluing of the entire race like it was here. For one, it was impossible to identify a Roman slave just by looking at them because slaves could come from any race within the Roman Empire and they could occupy any social status. People became slaves as captives of war if they were kidnapped and sold by pirates. But sometimes they became slaves just by having debt or by being convicted of a crime or even voluntarily going into slavery because they couldn't pay, you know, they were bankrupt, basically. They couldn't support themselves, and so slavery was a way to get taken care of. And slavery was not necessarily permanent. There were numerous ways out of it. Someone could be freed by paying off their debt or a lot of slaves were were able to earn money during slavery and they could buy their own freedom. Or they might be freed by a master through a practice called manumission. Um, Many freeborn Roman citizens were actually the children of freed slaves. And so there were few people whose lives weren't touched in some way by slavery. It was difficult when I was doing research to find hard numbers, but historians estimate that anywhere between 10 to 80% of Romans either were slaves or had once been slaves. And most of the sources that I could track down were leaning toward the heavier end of the spectrum. Um, slaves held jobs across, all across the Roman economy. They could be field workers, miners, or tradesmen. They could be teachers, caretakers, or specialist cooks. They could even be, and often were, administrators working in the bureaucracy. But all that to say, I don't want to sugarcoat Roman slavery as like, oh, well, it was just this beautiful working class. Like, they were still slaves. They were still considered the property of their masters. They could be bought and sold, They were not allowed to marry while being slaves. And if they had children while they were slaves, those children belonged to the master. Slaves could be whipped, beaten, abused, and treated with horrible cruelty by their masters. And those masters would face no repercussions for their treatment. The fate of the slaves' livelihood and all of their future prospects were held in the hands and the whims of their masters, these individuals who had authority over them. But... In spite of these big differences between slavery and like our current situation, it's not a far stretch to see how the paradigm of like slaves and house servants and their masters relates to our own experiences as employees related to our bosses and our supervisors, or as students to teachers, or even sometimes as children to parents. Because unless you are the top dog, head honcho, working for yourself in every facet of your life, that means there is someone in authority over you who holds the keys to your current and future livelihood, someone who can promote you or get in your way, someone who can make life easy or difficult because of the authority that they wield over you in whatever aspect of your life. And so in this passage, the Holy Spirit uses Peter to give us guidance on how we should respond when we are under ungodly authority and when we are suffering unjustly because of it. Peter gives us instruction on the what, who, how, why, and the power that we have to respond with Christian hope in unjust suffering. 
So today we're going to try to address each one of these parts of Peter's instruction. When we are suffering, what should we do? To whom should we do it? How can we do it? What is the why behind it? And what is the power that we have? That's the outline of the talk today. So first, what should we do? What does Peter actually call us to do? In verse 18, we see that he calls us to be subject to those over us with all respect. But what does that mean, be subject with all respect? When God calls us to be subject to the authority over us, he's asking us to willingly submit our will to someone else. For us to choose to use our gifts and abilities in a humble way that respects and uplifts those who are over us. To be submissive in a Christian sense does not mean we never disagree. It does not mean that we never offer suggestions for improvement or constructive criticism. But it does mean that in everything that we do, we make it our aim to honor and respect those in authority over us. Not because the human leaders have great value, but because we greatly value God. Paul writes a similar sentiment in Colossians 3, 22 through 24. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. So we can submit to authorities over us because we know that our service really and truly goes to honor Christ, our loving and perfect and worthy Lord. And not only are we working for the Lord, we will receive an inheritance from him as well. And that's great news, right? Because Peter tells us here that we are to submit not only to good human masters, but also to ones who are unjust, who are harsh, who are wicked, or maybe even just foolish. So the to whom answer, and to whom should we do this to, is anyone that God has placed in authority over you. No matter who is in charge, God has placed you there for a reason, And even the suffering that you're going through has good purposes for you. If your boss is cruel, harsh, or just frustratingly dumb, what does God want you to do? He wants you to endure suffering while continuing to do good. Don't let others make you forget who you are. Earlier in this chapter, Peter says that we are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we may declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so no matter what anyone else says to or about us, no matter what anyone else does to us, that's still true. You're still chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. You have been given honor by the one most honorable. Your reward is with him. And he has made you his ambassador to represent his kingdom of love and goodness and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And none of that changes even if other people don't see it. It doesn't change even if other people oppose you for it or bring other types of suffering into your life. Our call is to continue to represent our father and king by doing good even in the face of suffering. Now, 
I do need to make an important caveat here. Like, I'm not saying that God wants you to stay in dangerous or abusive situations. Like, we thankfully live under different circumstances in the Roman slaves that uh, Peter is writing to, right? We live in a country where we have the ability to change jobs, where we can leave at will, and where the laws of the land so far continue to offer protection as well as justice. So there may come a time when the most loving and respectful and submissive thing that you can do for your employer is to report them to a greater authority or to turn them into the police to save them from greater sin and to save others from being hurt by them. There may come a time when God opens a door and makes it clear that it's just time for you to move on. You've done your time here and it's time for you to look for, you know, greener pastures. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul writes to slaves and says, if you see an opportunity to gain your freedom, take it. But also don't worry about it if you cannot, if you are stuck in that place or if it is, if the door is not open. Because there may also come a time when your job is draining and your boss or your teacher or whoever makes you miserable and God calls you to endure, to persevere, to keep doing your best, to continue honoring and respecting the authority over you in spite of the, whatever suffering that they're bringing into your life. And honestly, this is true of most types of suffering. There are many reasons why we suffer, Right? Many times our suffering is just a mystery. The answer is only known to God. Also, the curse of sin has warped the world in such a way that we experience suffering simply from being in the world, simply from living. Sometimes suffering is due to our own mistakes, whether they be sinful, careless, or just clumsy. Sometimes suffering is our own fault. Sometimes Our suffering is due to other people making mistakes, other people being careless, clumsy, unthinking, or being outright evil and trying to make you suffer on purpose. I mean, this passage in 1 Peter straight up tells us that some of our suffering will be unjust. It won't be right. That in spite of you doing good, others will intentionally bring suffering into your life. We can't control or we can't avoid suffering And we can't control how or when it comes into our lives, but we can control how we respond to it. Because there are ways of suffering that are good for us, and there are ways to suffer that make things worse, that add suffering to our suffering. If we suffer rightly, our suffering can actually bring us closer to God, right? It can deepen our relationship. It can help us by removing distractions and obstacles, All the busyness and the frivolities and the pleasures and cares of the day-to-day become far less less important when we feel like our life is on the line, right? When we are desperate for help. Suffering can cause us to cry out to God for that help that only he can give. And if we do cry out to God, we will find that God is close at hand because James 4.8 says that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Sometimes God uses the megaphone of suffering to cut through the fog and the bustle of life to call us to himself so that we draw near to him because he promises that he will be there, that he is already there. Sometimes when we have our legs knocked out from under us, it can reveal the idols that we've been standing on and we can find restoration and peace and hope and strength and greater joy when we let go of those idols and throw all of our hope onto God. But on the other hand, if we don't let go of those idols, 
If when our legs are kicked out from under us, we kick and scream and say, why God, why me? We're devastated because our life isn't going how it should. We can be surprised by suffering if we believe that God owes us what we want, that he owes us the ability to follow through our plans and our dreams, an easy and happy life. We can be frustrated by our goals being stifled and our dreams being diverted or even snuffed out, and we can allow suffering to turn us bitter and untrusting towards God. We can dig our heels in that secret unspoken belief that we know better than God, that our ways are better than his ways. Because my problem, truthfully, is that I think that I would make a better God than God. I think that a disturbing, ridiculous, mockable amount of time. Like, I know it's wrong. Like, I know it's dumb. I know it's the same kind of sin that made Adam and Eve break the world in the first place, thinking that they knew better than God, that they could get something better than what God was offering them. It sounds so stupid saying it out loud. Like, God, you're doing a good job, but I got some notes. Um, like, I know that God is infinitely good and infinitely wise and infinitely loving and powerful and all that, but he doesn't run the world the way that I would run the world. And he doesn't run my life the way that I would run my life. I remember one time specifically where I was like wringing my hands and getting nervous and anxious because I really wanted this certain job and I didn't know if I was going to get it. If I was going to get it. And my mom was trying to comfort me and encourage me. She was like, Jason, I don't know why you're worrying. God knows what you need, right? He has the power to get you that job. And I was like, yeah, mom, I know he can. I don't know if he's going to. And that's what was, I was worried about. Like, I didn't care that God had some plan for me. I cared that his plan wasn't necessarily mine, and I was worried that it wasn't going to be that. And this plan led into all the other plans that I had for that year. And so I was like, if I don't get this, I'm not going to be able to do all these other things that I had planned. And so I was really wringing my hands in worry and frustrated. Sometimes when we suffer when I suffer, I suffer extra because I'm also fighting against the fact against, or that God is working a plan that I don't know and I don't like, and I want him to change it. I suffer extra because in addition to fighting with my suffering, I am also fighting against God. When I am bitter about a situation in my life, when I'm resentful of my suffering, when I'm anxious about the future, that reveals that I have fallen to one of three options. Either I think God isn't good, or I think that he doesn't have the power to do the good he wants, or I think that his idea is just not as good as mine, and therefore not good. Um, So how can I do, then, what Peter is telling us to do, to endure suffering while continuing to do good? So part of the answer is found in our text in verse 19. It says, for this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering unjustly. We experience God's grace and favor when we endure sorrows while being mindful of God. If we hold in our minds and our consciousness the truth of who he really is. Because I know that God is good. He is so good that he is the very one who defines the word good. The Bible assures me that he is the rock. His works are perfect and all of his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. That's Deuteronomy 32.4. Uh, Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and rich in love. 
The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. God is so good that James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from him. God shows his goodness in every good thing you've ever experienced in your life. Sunsets, a refreshing breeze, delicious food, the very ground beneath your feet, the goodness you experience from a laugh, a smile, a hug, a friend, anything good from anybody or anything in your life flows out of the infinite spring of God's goodness. God is constantly displaying his goodness. And he's so good that he couldn't leave his goodness up in heaven, far away from us, right? He brought his goodness down to earth, into our mess, to get up and close and personal with his goodness. He, Jesus left the comfort and glory and goodness of heaven to enter this cursed and broken world to save us and bring us to himself so that we could experience his goodness. And above and beyond all these general displays of goodness is the reality that he has specific good plans for your life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And he's writing that in the context of Jews who were suffering. They were in exile. They were enslaved by a foreign you know, people. And God's like, no, 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 this looks bad, I know, but I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. So not only is God good, I know that God is committed to good for me. You can know that God is committed to your specific personal good. He doesn't waste one second of your pain that's offered to him. All of his plans are for your good. And I also know that God has the power to accomplish all of his good plans. Job 42.2 says, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. No one can mess up God's plans. Isaiah 14.24 and 27 say, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Isaiah 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, and from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So whatever suffering comes your way, wherever it comes from, it cannot stop God from doing good to you. And in fact, it's part of the way that he is working things together for your good to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. But even though God knows that pain is a necessary part of his good plan for you, that doesn't make him cold to our suffering. He's not up there being like, ah, get over it. It's going to be better in the end. This God is the same Jesus who wept with the mourners of Lazarus. When Lazarus died and Jesus was coming to resurrect him from the dead, he knew in minutes Lazarus would be like, oh, hey, I feel fine. But when he saw the pain, when he was there, he experienced the pain with the mourners. He wept with them. His heart was moved with compassion. And Psalm 34, 18 says that God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Your pain causes God's heart to ache. 
It moves his heart. It ensures that he is right by your side. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says that he is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. God is with you in your suffering. You are not alone. And he's not just with us, like on our side, tapping us on the shoulder, being there, there. He suffers with us. He shares in our suffering. Isaiah 63, 9 says, speaking of God's relationship with his people, in all their affliction, he too was afflicted. God deeply cares about you. Your suffering matters. He experiences it as if it's happening to his own self. But why then? Why does he make us go through it? What possible reason could God have to want us to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly? One reason that we have from verses 19 and 20 is that when you do good and you still suffer for it, and then you endure because you are mindful of God, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When people are unfairly evil to you, and then you are unfairly good to them in return, you are blessed with a special experience of God's grace. There are other ways that um, other Bible versions have translated this, this passage or this phrase is that it's commendable when we continue to do good in the face of unjust suffering. It finds favor. God is pleased. God is pleased because when you suffer in this way, you are following in the example of Jesus. In Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you for for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And here in 1 Peter 21, or 2.21, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, so that, or because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You experience God's grace, his favor, his pleasure, when you endure suffering by persisting in doing good, mindful of God, because you are following in the footsteps of Christ. You are following in the footsteps Jesus walked out for you. You are blessed because you are carrying the name and the character of God's beloved son into the world that he so loves. Now, to some of us, that might sound more daunting than encouraging. Like, we're supposed to follow in Jesus' footsteps? It's too rich for my blood, I'm out. Because if you look at, like, let's look at the example from verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I feel like he lost me from the get-go with he committed no sin. Like I'm already, oh, that, I guess that's not me then. But, oh, so like with this, like how can we possibly hope to follow in Christ's footsteps to endure and suffer rightly when that's our standard? But of course, God does not leave us standing empty-handed. Right here at the end of this passage, Peter connects us with the power, the power that we need to suffer rightly. 
And that power is, unsurprisingly, the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? It says, he himself bore our sins on his, in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We can only do this in the strength that comes when we accept the reality that our sins died in his body and that we die to those sins. We don't have to become fretful and bitter when people treat us unjustly because we know that if Jesus hates sin so much that he would die to kill it, he will be similarly passionate to bring justice to the wrongs done to us. And this is the hope that we have in Jesus. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, knowing that even if we are falsely accused and treated wrongly on earth, we are truly known and loved and appreciated and forgiven in the only court that matters. We know that justice has been and will be served. We can endure suffering while continuing to do good because Jesus' death and resurrection has brought about a new power, a new reality, God's Holy Spirit living in us so that we can be alive to righteousness. We were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls who will empower and guide us and protect us in all of our suffering. Because God doesn't respond to our suffering with a perfect argument or explanation. He responds to our hurt and our need with a perfect person, one who suffered like us, one who suffers with us and who suffered for us. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, his great suffering puts to rest our questions of God's love and his goodness and his purpose. By his wounds, we are healed. Our hearts are healed. Our questions are healed. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And then he did it. He laid down his life for us, his friends. He laid down his own life for you, calling you his friend. He entered into every bit of your suffering, exceeding your suffering even, suffering the rot of every evil thing that you have done and every evil thing that has been or will be done to you. And he took that all to an excruciating death on the cross, all because he loves you so much that he couldn't bear to not be with you. So whatever suffering you must endure, whatever suffering I must endure, we know that it's not because Jesus doesn't love us. That's not why the suffering's happening. We know that it's not because he doesn't want good in our lives, right? He literally came down and died in order to ensure good would happen in our life. So it's not because he, wants to, he doesn't care about the good. It's not because he wants to punish us for what we've done. That's not why we suffer, right? Because Jesus took our punishment on himself. He paid for all of our sins on the cross so that there is therefore now no condemnation for us. And so whatever suffering you endure, you also know that you are not alone. Jesus said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Whenever you are suffering, turn your eyes to Jesus. Call out to him. Be mindful of him. Bring others. Don't, don't try to suffer alone, right? He's called us to be a chosen people, not a chosen person, right? 
Sometimes our suffering, is, or oftentimes our suffering is best handled when we come together as the body. And a lot of times we can't come together as the body because we think that we need to suffer on our own, that nobody wants to bear, bear that burden, right? But that's not what the Bible tells us. That's not what God tells us. He says, yes, I am with you always, but a lot of the ways that I work are through the body, through the community. So that means we need to open our up to each other with our suffering. We need to pray for each other so that we can be healed. We need to have that kind of humility, right? Because a lot of times we don't do it because we're like, oh, I want to make sure that I can do this myself. Like, it's just me and Jesus. Jesus and I can handle this. And Jesus is like, yeah, we can, but this is the door that I want you to go through, right? So no matter where your suffering comes from, no matter who it comes from, fix your eyes on Jesus. Be mindful of him, right? If you want evidence that we need other people with us to suffer, when Jesus was suffering in the garden, did he say, God and I got this. We have perfect relationship, father and son. No, he talked to his friends. He said, guys, my soul is troubled to the point of death. Like, I need you to stay up with me and pray with me, right? And so in the same way, we follow in Christ's footsteps. We fix our eyes on him. We're mindful of him. Walking in his steps and we revel, we rejoice in the fact that no matter what's happening, we know that he is with us always and that he is our true master, our true authority, and that he is bringing good out of this. So Evan, you can come up. I'm going to pray real quick. <laughs> um, I'm going to pray real quick while Evan's coming up. Uh, Jesus, we thank you so much for your glory and for your gospel. God, it's so powerful that you could have just taught us what, what to do. You could have just told us. You could have just been an example to us. But you came down to be here with us, Lord, to blaze the trail for us, Lord, so we can walk in your footsteps. That we don't have to sink so far into the snow or the mud, Lord, because we can stand on your shoulders. God, we pray that you would open us up to you and to each other, that we would not suffer alone, Lord, that we would invite you into our suffering, that we would invite others into our suffering, that we would carry each other's burdens and fulfill that law of the love of Christ. And Lord, we pray that um, you would give us grace to endure when we are suffering unjustly, when um, our bosses or our leaders or our authorities over us, God, are just messing things up and doing a dumb job or being evil towards us, Lord. We pray that you help us to endure and to represent your kingdom rightly, to be ambassadors, enduring and persevering. And God, we pray for wisdom and discernment for those who whose time it is to move from their job, to move from their class, to move from, away from you know, whatever situation they, they have been suffering. Help us to do all these things, Jesus, in your name.